Good morning. This is John LaBelle. Welcome to Visionaries. Uh, apologies for being a few minutes late, some engineering problems, but you can expect the rest of the day on PRN to click right in on time and uh, be sure to catch Gary at noon. Here, the WBAI is having uh, transmission problems, so you can always, if you can't get Gary on BAI, you get him on PRN every day at noon. And we're on Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. And you can catch all of our back shows, including this one later today, in our archives at visionaries.podbean.com. Catch our show live at prn.fm. You can also catch us on the phone. And also, anybody out there, call in. Today I want to continue last week's discussion of who wants to live for a thousand years? So, um, uh, if you if you want to call, all right, our phone's not working. Right, you can't call in. Call in next week, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and you can always email me at John Lobel J O H N L O B is in boy E L L at Mac. Excuse me, <clears throat> Mac M A C dot com. So, yeah, we've got uh, a few technical problems here, but the phone system should be up and running again shortly. And um, so that'll be frustrating for some of our shows. <clears throat> so last week I was uh, talk. I was inspired by a conference I went to, organization called Foresight, F-O-R-E-S-I-G-H-T dot O-R-G. So you want to look them up. And they were founded in the late 80s, I think, by K. Eric Drexler and his then-wife, Christine Peterson. She's still very active there. <clears throat> was until recently the president, but is still active. And Foresight was set up to promote nanotechnology. And, you know, it's interesting when a new technology comes along, uh, we can't always we can sometimes predict it's going to happen, but you can't always predict how it's going to happen. You know, like self-driving cars. Well, they're here. <laughs> They've racked up over a million miles in California. Uber just uh, ordered, what is it, 24,000 self-driving Volvos. We're all thinking what's the world going to be like when Ubers are have no drivers and yeah, maybe your Uber bill is cut in half because you don't have to pay the driver. But how's it exactly? How's that going to happen? What's it going to mean? Uh, you know, uh, one of the far out speculations is no one will own a car anymore because Uber type uh, rides will be so prevalent and so cheap. And then you think about what does that mean? Well. My car spends more than 90% of its time parked. What happens if we all travel the same, a little bit more maybe, but cars are working instead of less than 10% of the time, they're working more than 90% of the time. And so 
uh, what happens if there's 90% less cars out there? I remember I'm an architect, so went to architecture school. And in the 60s, we were told how wonderful New York was because it had lots of public transportation, subways, and buses and everything. And New York is, of course, so dense that there's enough people going from anywhere to anywhere that they can have a subway or a bus and or almost anywhere. <laughs> it's almost a mile walk for me to the nearest subway. I'm a little bit off the grid um, in an interesting place, but in the East 20s in Manhattan. But um, and we were told Los Angeles, oh, they're they're bad people. Because they're so spread out, they use cars so much that more than 50% of the land in Los Angeles is roads and parking lots. What happens if 90% of the cars go away because they're, you know, working 90% of the time instead of 10% of the time? What is that? Uh, how, you know, well, what? A lot of developers will start buying up those parking lots <laughs> and putting up uh, uh, maybe paradise, <laughs> paved over paradise, put up a parking lot. Well, uh, tore down the parking lot, put up a – what is it going to be? It's not going to be malls. <clears throat> malls are disappearing. Who would have guessed? Malls are closing like crazy. They're all economically in trouble. And and then they have to change, you know. I mean, maybe malls will still be around, but well, you know, why why would you go to a mall to buy something you can buy on Amazon and get delivered to your door? Soon, buy a drone, <laughs> which might make the delivery uh, cheaper and more efficient. Who knows? But. If that as that happens, well, why do you go to the mall? Why would you go to a store in a mall? Well, the experience. You walk in this. You walk into a what's that Japanese department store? Um, goes by its initials. But you look at T-shirts, and there's just it's like a color palette. There's a half a dozen reds and a half a dozen. Uh, you know, it's like the whole rainbow of colors and. You don't get that experience on the web. So uh, the experience of being in there, well, what what will that experience be? Well, the first uh, people to figure it out will be the successful malls. You know, it's like when department stores first started to happen. And there's this area of New York in the 20s over on uh, 6th Avenue was the, the department store mile. Uh, where they were all located. Then by the 50s, they were on Fifth Avenue. But the first department stores were had these great atriums with plants in there and birds flying around to mimic the outdoors because women were not supposed to, if they could go out of the house, but they weren't supposed to go indoors somewhere. You know, they might be in danger. So the first department stores mimicked the outdoors with these great atriums. And uh, first malls did that as well, Cherry Hill in Pennsylvania. So what's going to come next? And, you know, what are, 
what are these uh, self-driving cars going to usher in in terms of whole changes to our culture? Remember, Marshall McLuhan told us that the automobile was not a horseless carriage, but rather the automobile was a front porch on wheels. Well, what did you do on the front porch? Well, think about it and imagine how what you did on the front porch could change when it detached from the house and rolled a bit of a distance away. And then you begin to understand the psychology, the sociological impact of the automobile. So uh, as we face these new technological changes, uh, we should go back and reread McLuhan. And we did, we've done a couple shows on McLuhan with clips of him speaking. You can find him on YouTube. Just search Marshall McLuhan. And uh, recommended reading in McLuhan, his definitive book is Understanding Media. And I'm surprised. I'm a pretty good reader, <laughs> like I used to be. Uh, most of my books now are consumed on audio books. But understanding media is a bit difficult. So uh, start with a book called The Medium is the Massage. So McLuhan is famous for the phrase, the medium is the message, by which he means the impact of something like television, newspapers, uh, is not the content, but the form. <clears throat> so that it's not what's, of course, there's importance to what's on TV, but the impact that it has on us as a species comes more from the fact that it was centrally broadcast five channels. Uh, the next morning, you'd talk about what was on I Love Lucy in the 1950s because three-quarters of all people in the country had watched I Love Lucy. So talk around the water cooler or in school was about what was on that episode. So the fact that you were subliminally aware that you were part of a community of half or three-quarters of all the people in the country when watching it, what'd that do? What'd that mean? And it, McLuhan's point was it created a tribal community, the global village. Well, uh, so what does our new uh, technology do? And so as we are facing these new technologies like self-driving Ubers <coughs> or Lyfts or whatever, what's it going to mean? We want to reread McLuhan and, uh, you know, sort of get uh, caught up on that. So similarly, Foresight was founded to promote nanotechnology, and Drexler's vision was that uh, uh, what eventually manufacturing will be at the scale of assembling molecules and atoms. And you'll have these little nanorobots assembling one atom at a time. Of course, a lot of these little nanorobots. And they'll be able to make anything, you know, most typically diamond, since the diamonds are made out of carbon, which is one of the most common and cheapest elements there is. What makes them diamonds is just the crystal arrangement. <clears throat> so 
What happens when you make automobiles out of diamond, when you make uh, paper out of diamond, when you make electronic chips, computer chips, out of diamond? Uh, and they're as cheap as potatoes, and you can make them in any configuration. Well, Foresight originally promoted that. The first Foresight conferences I went to were about nanotechnology, but they sort of branched out to now cover all of technology, artificial. The last one I went to, there was a lot on artificial intelligence and what else? Oh, uh, blockchains and bitcoins and life extension. So what happens when we find the genetic cause of aging and turn it off? <laughs> so we're just getting to the point where you know, we can take cells out of a person, alter their DNA, and put them back. Now, there's tr trillions of cells in us, so, uh, but, you know, if you do some white blood cells and you alter their DNA and they multiply, um, or you do the blown mar bone marrow that makes them, uh, so that you can... A uh, substantial number of your white blood cells have this altered DNA to make it go after a cancer tumor, for example. So these are the things on the horizon. And the, um, you know, if we find, oh, you know, there's these, a couple of genes in there that cause us to age and we turn them off. And so the, the vision is we get to pick a number, 30 years of age, and then stop aging. And, you know, we'll cont may continue to learn and continue to mature, but we're in a 30-year-old body for hundreds of years. Well, is that doable? And if so, what does it mean? Well, I work in the field of uh, cryonics. I'm director of research and education for a project called Timeship, and we'll have the director of the project on <coughs> Uh, one of our future shows, but if you go to Timeship, that's Timeship like spaceship, but Timeship.org, because uh, Timeship is going to take you to the future in time because it's a cryonics facility. It's a life extension research and cryonics facility where uh, it's next generation, so We've got, you know, we're doing our research, we have our site, and we're doing preliminary work, but we're not up and running yet. We will be eventually. Next generation in that, the big problem with cryonics is when you get frozen, they don't like me to say this, but when you freeze a strawberry and you thaw it out, uh, it doesn't look like a fresh strawberry. So... Uh, People who have been frozen, particularly those frozen in the 60s, uh, it's called um, first in, last out. <laughs> in other words, the people frozen 40 years ago, 50 years ago, uh, they might not get thought out for a while because uh, they're a mess. But the ones being cryopreserved now, more recently, uh, are in much better shape. So they'll be the first ones out, if and when. So... The idea is, uh, okay, in 
pick a number, 30 years, we won't age anymore. But what about us who are old enough that we might not make it? <clears throat> and those are the people, that's why people get signed up to be frozen. They're not anxious to be frozen. <laughs> uh, but I like this. One of the prominent people in the field likes to say, uh, being cryonically frozen uh, is the worst thing that can happen to you. <laughs> I'm sorry, the second worst thing that can happen to you. First worst is cremation. <laughs> There's no coming back. <laughs> but uh, second worst is to be cryo- cryonically frozen. And, uh, you know, hopefully eventually they'll be able to fix you and bring you back. Anyway, um, what I want to think about is, so what about this long lifespan? hundreds of years. So there's really profound questions here. And the people in the cryonics field do give thought uh, to the issue of, hmm, what does this mean? What does it mean that we won't age? What does it mean that we'll be around for possibly hundreds of years? In what form will we be around? Right off, uh, many of the people who are <laughs> cryonically preserved or are signed up, are signed up only to have their heads done. And of the head, all I want to keep is the brain, but the head's a good container for the brain, so no point in taking the brain out. Just do the head. And that way they can focus, the people doing the preservation can focus more on uh, making sure that it's Minimal damage is done during the uh, cryopreservation process. And, you know, freezing produces ice crystals, which do damage. So they try to avoid freezing. The term they use now is vitrification. So to bring to a glass-like state with no crystals, but with the super cool um, preservation. So around liquid nitrogen temperatures, which is around 196, um, minus 196 Celsius, or a vitrification they use around minus 130 Celsius, there's no degradation. Uh, You bring biological material to that temperature, and 100 years later you thaw it out, it's in perfect shape, whatever that shape is. But it doesn't uh, biologically degrade over time at those low temperatures. So, uh, okay, now what? So, they get kind of glib at this point. They're relying on the uh, acceleration of technological, exponential acceleration of technological development that Ray Kurzweil talks about, and Ray Kurzweil likes to say, well, what are things going to be like in 100 years? Well, let's see. This is uh, right now, 2017, for a few more weeks anyway. Uh, What were things like in 1917? What happened over that 100 years? So, Let's extrapolate that forward. So Ray Kurzweil likes to say, wrong. Uh, The changes we'll see in the next 100 years will be more like the last 20,000 years uh, because 
the technological development progresses exponentially. So in explaining exponentially, well, how much development will we see? Well, when they do this in in a lecture, you know, they can walk across the stage and say, well, let's take 30 uh, logarithmic steps, 30 linear steps. I'm sorry, not logarithmic, linear. So let's take 30 linear steps. And if they're uh, three feet each, uh, you will be 90 feet down the stage. But what if they're exponential steps? First one is three feet. The next one is six. The next one is 12 feet. The next one's 24 feet, etc. In 30 steps, you will have circled the earth 27 times. So uh, it adds up. <laughs> so that's uh, the base. That's the source of the faith that technological development will be so substantial in the next hundred years that they will have the technology to uh, thaw cryopreserved people out and make them new bodies, whatever that's going to mean. Some people think, well, you know, I'll have myself cloned and I'll have a new young body with the aging genes turned off. No point in coming back, you know, 80 years old and living for another five years. It's a lot of effort to go through that. So one of the assumptions is aging will be turned off. Uh, So you you could have a body somewhat like ours today. You'd want that gene where you can eat all the food you want without gaining weight. You know, and you want to be a few inches taller and you want to uh, not have the baldness gene, a few little things like that. So some people think that way, but some people go to more extremes like, well, of course, they will scan my brain and recreate it in a computer chip. Now I can live a really long time and now I can interrelate with billions of other people on that computer chip and... Um, whatever. (laughs) Uh, Travel across the universe. Um, Who knows? And you think back uh, just 40 years ago when uh, home computers were just, you know, just on the horizon. So what are we going to do with them? Well, what do they do with computers and business? Well, they do inventory. Uh, They can keep track of everything in the in the computer. So maybe the home computer, the housewife will keep track of all the canned soup. <laughs> and the computer will know when we're running low on canned soup and tell us to uh, buy some more canned soup. That was the best they had. Nobody predicted Wikipedia, watching streaming movies, YouTube, Facebook. Uh, none of that was predicted. So by most people. Some people did. Um, there were bulletin boards at the time. I set up a bulletin board for a company um, using bulletin board technology just as the internet was happening. And some of that stuff was hinted at there. But anyway, so if you knew about bulletin board technology, you might have uh, you might have uh, predicted it. But even bulletin boards uh, came about around the time of the 286. I met the guy who invented bulletin boards, which is basically inventing 
um, Facebook, um, the technology for Facebook. I was on a bus to him with him from the airport, you know, going to a conference. I say, so what do you do? He says, I invented the whole thing. <laughs> no kidding. Um, I'm not going to say his name because I might get it wrong. I'll look it up, talk about it some future time. Maybe we'll interview him. But he said, I figured out that, you know, between uh, where uh, where we still had dial-up modems then, but at 1200 baud uh, with a dial-up modem and with the power of a 286 computer, you know, all this stuff becomes possible with the home computer. So he did the first software for that. Anyway, uh, so what what are we going to do with these extended lives? And fun to think about that and fun to think about how much, you know, people aren't thinking about it as much as um, they should be. <clears throat> so it changes the self. And... You know, what, 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 is, what is a self going to be like? What am I going to be like? What are we going to be like um, in this new world? And the people who think about this are the people in artificial intelligence, which is, you know, they're the science types. And I um, I don't know that they really... We need people in the humanities getting involved in this. <clears throat> I was at an artificial intelligence conference or consciousness conference, and I ended up standing in the, standing in the aisle in the auditorium, and I was started arguing with this guy. He was at Stanford. And the guy I later learned was Edward Feigenbaum. And I'm arguing with this guy. He He's one of the... Founders of artificial intelligence, a you know, major figure. Who am I? <laughs> I'm just, so, you know, I give him a hard time. And I look him up. Uh, Edward Feigenbaum, born 1936, is a computer scientist working in the field of artificial intelligence, joint winner of the 1994 ACM Turing Award. He is often called the father of expert systems. <laughs> So anyway, um, I'm I'm trying to say, you know, the approach you guys have to this consciousness is just inadequate. I mean, we've got here physicists, mathematicians, and computer scientists thinking they understand human beings. Um, human beings are not computers. And he started to challenge me. So I finally I said, uh, look. There are other disciplines at Stanford looking at what human beings are, looking at what consciousness is, besides just the mathematicians and the physicists. And he says, oh, you mean the fuzzies, <laughs> you know, like English literature, art, philosophy, stuff like that. So they don't think too much of um, – some people in computer science don't think too much of the humanities. You know, they'll typically say something like, uh, oh, yes, the uh, emotions are important, too, um, as though that's the alternative to computer science. Although the humanities 
don't always um, don't always display themselves in a too much uh, uh, too good a light. So um, it's getting a little bit better, but <laughs> for a while, humanities had been taken over by the uh, post-structuralist or post-humanist with total gibberish. The first thing I did, did was deny the existence of the self. So there is no self. <clears throat> now, what does that mean? Does it mean I'm not here? Well, actually, yeah, it's what the behaviorists said who had taken over psychologists in the psychology in the 50s and 60s. So I look up behaviorism on um, Wikipedia. Behaviorism is a systematic approach to the understanding of the behavior of humans and other animals. It assumes that all behaviors are either reflexes produced by a response to certain stimuli in the environment or consequences of that individual's history, including especially reinforcement and punishment. In other words, um, we're little robots that uh, respond to stimuli in the environment, and that's the sum total. There is no interior self. There's no mind. There's no consciousness. And these people totally controlled psychology for decades. Um, now we have cognitive uh, psychology and stuff like that, looking at larger issues. And then we get the, uh, the post-structuralists, the Lacan, Foucault, Derrida, Deleuze people. And when I want to be, when I want to be critical of them, uh, there's a great website, uh, Communications from Elsewhere. And you go to their website, they will, um, every time you log in, there's another essay there. And the essays are post-structuralist essays generated by um, uh, random word combined, computer word combiners. So here's an essay on contexts of failure. Class is part of the absurdity of culture, says Foucault. In a sense, neo-Simonic uh, disinstitutionalism suggests that sexuality is capable of truth, given that the premise of patriarchal theory is invalid. Lacan promotes the use of neo-Simonic desituationism to attack the outdated colonial perceptions of truth. Now, this goes on. It's an entire uh, PhD thesis is generated by the computer, and it is utter gibberish. But that's what these people write. So we've got a bunch of these on people teaching this stuff on our faculty. And our students, I teach architecture, and our students have to write a <clears throat> research paper in preparation for their uh, thesis project. And so the research papers are all piled up on a table. And I go look at them, and I pick them up, and they're like what I just read to you. Um, 
their sound like their computer-generated gibberish jargon. And the students are being taught that that's what it means to be educated, that you can generate this stuff that sounds like computer-generated gibberish jargon. Well, I'm kind of unpopular (laughs) in certain circles where I teach because I point this out. And um, people teaching this stuff don't want to hear it. But we go back to this issue of, okay, so you get frozen, you get thought out. What is thought out? Is is it still you? Is it a self? What is a self? And there's nobody really thinking about that. And the, most of the people that think about a self deny it its existence, like a lot of people in consciousness studies and a lot of people in post-structuralist um, humanities, <clears throat> social science and humanities. And... It's really tricky, you know, because there's a a woman, Susan Blackmore, and she's done a couple of books on consciousness, which are pretty good because she's part of this crowd. But what she does is summarize all the theories of self. And, okay, one of the books is one of those very brief books, you know, that's got a lot of drawings in it that kind of... you know, like a graphic novel kind of summarizes the state of the art. And it's a really good getting up to speed about what the theories are. But they observe things like, is there oneself? Or, you know, are there a whole bunch of mm, parallel things going on in my mind? Parallel selves bunking, bumping around inside my consciousness. So, anyway, uh, there's a lot of denial of self uh, in the post-structuralist humanities and consciousness studies. And, you know, the computer people claim that consciousness is nothing more nor less than a the consequence of the firing of neurons. So if we can get those neurons refiring, we're back. And so um, you get thought out, and they see if they can get the neurons to refire. Or if they can scan the brain down at the level of individual synapses and recreate them in a computer, a computer such as it is 100 years from now, when uh, it can do that. So those are the kinds of things these people think about. But... You know, who are we? What is, What are we? What is it that's going to be brought back? What is going to live for 300 years? Or what's going to be brought back? A lot of room for discussion here. And I could invite you to call in, but our phones aren't working. So we'll call in about that on some future show. But one of the things I like to do when I, I uh, teach this material is look at a map of Eurasia. And think about how this notion of what a self is is very different in different cultures. So if we look at uh, 
China, Japan, and Korea in traditional culture. I have this notion of the Tao, T-A-O, but it's pronounced D-A-O, the Tao. And it's that thing we read about in the Tao Te Ching. And basically, the Tao is the flow of all things. And so we uh, want to put ourselves in accord with that flow. We want to be part of that flow. We want to be part of the flow of all things. So the idea of an armored ego standing outside of nature, outside of all things, which is very much a notion we have in the West, is something they want to avoid in traditional Chinese Japanese culture. And then you wonder, is that notion still current in China today? And <clears throat> two things occur to me. One is, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but there are some great quotes in the uh, book by the current president of China in which he talks about the importance of harmony. We want to be in accord with the flow of society. You don't want to be out of harmony with it. Still a Chinese notion. And then there's a recent book called, uh, I think it's called The Girl at the the Girl at the Luggage Pickup, something like that. And it's by uh, a, a, about a school, a college, had given a lacrosse scholarship to a Chinese girl in China, and she comes, uh, you know, to enroll in the college, get her scholarship, and officers of the school are at the airport to pick her up, and they see her at the luggage checkout. This is not the person we agreed to give the scholarship to. And no, she had submitted her sister's credentials. Her sister was a lacrosse star. Well, she knew she did something wrong, but her attitude was, why is everybody making a big deal about it? Sort of like in the West when the speed limit is you know, 55 and we go 65. We know it's wrong, but you expect someone to make a federal case about it? Um, what, you know, the Chinese attitude is, what's the big deal? about? Yeah, we have individuality, but we don't make a big deal about it the way you guys do. So, um, you know, still very different attitudes. Traditionally in India, <clears throat> the notion was, this world is an illusion. And true reality, true reality is uh, a transcendent oneness. So we're like a drop of dew condensed out of the universe onto a leaf. And, ah, what am I doing out here? And um, enlightenment, death without rebirth is that drop of dew running back into and rejoining with the uh, universal ocean of oneness. And so it's really, we want to, we don't want to be out here separate, all alone. We want to be linked with this universal oneness. So this individuality happens, but it's not desirable. We want to get over it. In the Middle East, uh, in the biblical traditions, but we see it in 
ancient, the ancient Middle East, the Mesopotamia, and then in Persia, and then the biblical traditions, is a notice of notion of uh, this world was created by a creator who left instructions. And those instructions are reflected in the social order. As above, so below. We want that social order to be in accord with the instructions of that creator who maybe left the directions in the patterns of the stars. Could be in a book, could be in the patterns of the stars. And so again, we don't aspire to be individualistic, but rather to be in accord with all things. And then in ancient Greece, we have the notion of the individual. And this is uh, a first time in human history, this notion of the individual, the individual mind, the individual self, but subject to fate. So we have in the story of Prometheus, Prometheus standing in for humans, steals, you know, fire and uh, science and art from the gods and gives them to humans that we may, uh-oh, eventually overthrow the gods. That's why Zeus is so angry with Prometheus, chains him to a rock. And Prometheus riles at his fate, but it doesn't occur to him that he should overcome that fate, but rather uh, he resigns himself to his fate. And so the Greeks have this notion of the emergence of the individual human being, but realize that, um, you know, we call the Greek tradition the tragic tradition where all we still we know we're going to die. And then in the West, we again have this notion of the individual, but here there's a notion of an inner, uh, a moral compass in the heart of each individual. And so the morality comes not from being in accord with nature or uh, finding reunification with uh, transcendent oneness or with finding um, the pattern that the Creator desired us to conform to or with being resigned to your fate but rather, the uh, individual moral compass is in the heart of each individual. And so there is no external, you know, here's a book that's got the moral rules. Uh, what are the rules? Well, can we trust that each individual is going to come up with the right thing? Uh, something to think about, something the West wrestles with. So here are five totally different notions of who and what we are as human beings. And what I see in the humanities today lacking is that discussion, that notion of who and what we are. You know, the um, my humanities and social science colleagues uh, aren't capable of talking about this, uh, I find, but rather fall back on this jargonistic postmodern denial of this uh, this human 
condition. So, or this exploration of what a self is. And I, I was at a, uh, I was at a, a conference on consciousness. I'm going to have to do some looking on the internet, find the name of this guy. But the keynote speech was by an interesting um, s- writer about consciousness who wrote a very definitive book, and he's blind. He was blinded as an adult in an industrial accident. And um, he describes uh, how he lives his life, you know, which includes uh, he's oblivious to day and night. So he'll be out repairing the cleaning, cleaning out the gutters on his house, you know, up on a ladder. And so his neighbors are distressed that A, he's on a ladder, B, he's blind, and C, it's the middle of the night. Of course, the fact that it's the middle of the night doesn't mean anything to him because he's blind. But anyway, he described his theory and what he, in his book, and I was very struck by, you know, his perseverance and his character. And I asked the following question. I said, <clears throat> you have this, um, you brought to bear a focus on exploring what is consciousness and looking at your own consciousness. Might you also bring such a focus to bear on exploring a sense of self, what your self is, what is a self? And he said, I don't understand your question. So I repeated it twice, and he repeated himself twice, I understand your question. And then I realized what was going on, that he knew what I was talking about, but he was taking a position of a denial of the existence of a self. Uh, His notion of consciousness does not allow for that. Well, you know, I regard that position to be as off-base as the denial of an inner mind on the part, for 20 years, on the part of the um, behaviorist psychologists who dominated all of American academia for decades. Uh, they simply said, well, there is no inner mind. I'm sitting, I'm sitting here thinking, I know there's, I, <laughs> you know, I know there's a me. I think, therefore, I am. Like, I know I'm thinking. I know there's something going on here. I can... I can observe it. Whatever that means, of course. What's the I? What's the thinking? Yeah, that's that's the issue. That's the questions. But there is something going on, and they just denied it. Uh, so I, there is something that we can call a self, even if we might discuss exactly what it is. But the consciousness studies people deny it. Uh, so then what's the point of being frozen and coming back if there's no self? So one of my colleagues Um, who's one of the major figures in this uh, cryonics world and quite wealthy, um, has devised a questionnaire. So whatever comes back (laughs) has to answer these questions to get his money. (laughs) You know, if what comes back is no longer him, he doesn't want it to have his money. Uh, So... uh, Anyway, there's something to think about. What is it that if we do live for a thousand years, maybe we'll talk more about have some call-ins. What would you do? 
you know, plant olive trees, obviously. Your gardening can include that. Uh, maybe go to visit planets, go to visit stars. You know, some of those trips that might take hundreds of years. Uh, we can launch some long-scale projects. So anyway, that's uh, our theme for the day. Think about That's your assignment for a future show. Uh, call in, email me if you have some thoughts and you want to arrange to call in. This is John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. We're here every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. You've got to figure out what time it is in your part of the world. And you can email me at John LaBelle, J-O-H-N, L-O-B is in boy, E-L-L, at Mac, M-A-C dot com. And uh, see you again next Monday.